physically he's not human he's a monster but i think he's going through all of the human he's going through the human experience of mm. of feeling happiness and joy but also the sorrow and heartbreak of of disappointment and pain so i think he's a monster going through the human experience it also requires us to answer the question to you know what makes some monster monster because some humans right. too are uh, can be considered monsters because of things that they've done and so it, it's kind of right. weird lines between the two two words hello everyone in today's recording i'll chat with tacy and cassidy about mary shelley's novel frankenstein I'd like to begin with a quote from Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. We heard her in an earlier recording, giving a rebuttal to Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution. In this recording, I'd like to read a short snippet from her memoirs, a snippet which actually, to me, seems quite relevant to the themes and events in her daughter's novel, Frankenstein. Mary Wollstonecraft writes this, It appears to me impossible that I should cease to exist or that this active, restless spirit, equally alive to joy and sorrow, should only be organized dust, ready to fly abroad the moment the spring snaps, or the spark goes out, which kept it together. Surely something resides in this heart that is not perishable, and life is more than a dream. For more about that ineffable something, that spark, that keeps the organized dust of our bodies alive and in motion. Let's go into that chat with Tacey and Cassidy about Frankenstein. Hi. Hi, Tacey. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, and here's Cassidy. How are you, Cassidy? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I can't tell you how excited I am for this discussion. I've been really looking forward to this one. It's one of my greatest regrets for the syllabus, actually, that we can't spend more time on this book. I think more than most other of the books on the syllabus, it is so infinitely suggestive and seems to be an allegory for almost everything. You know what I mean? It's an allegory of Adam and Eve and the fall of man. There's, of course, the Prometheus myth. This book asks questions like, what is a human? I think there's a metaphor for art. You know, we, we could ask uh, what is Frankenstein as a metaphor for a work of art? That's a very interesting question. What is Frankenstein as an emblem of the products of science? Right. So this novel is commenting on science and its effects. I think there's a, an interesting psychological reading, like Freud, Frankenstein is this like embodiment of the id or something, and his violence. I don't know. It's some kind of weird wish fulfillment. I think there's an interesting feminist reading to this text making a wonderful comment on what could go wrong if a man tries to have a child without a woman. <laughs> and then and then there's this other wonderful unassembled female creature that he chooses, that Frankenstein chooses not to create. So there's that absent presence in the book that I find very interesting. I think autobiographically, this says a lot of interesting things about um, Mary Shelley's life. She wrote it when she was about 18. She began writing it when she was 18, which, which puts us all to shame. Um, I think by the time it was finished, she had already lost two kids. And for a while, while she was writing it, she was pregnant. And there's there's a, even this wonderfully horrible dream that she records she, uh, around the same time of writing this novel. This dream in which one of her dead children, 
is revived. She kind of dreams that she holds it near this fire and kind of rubs it and it comes back to life, which I find extremely you know, horrible and suggestive. We see in this novel, a human bringing something to life with fires. And in fact, um, I, I can already tell I'm doing too much rambling. There's this, you know, there's all these famous film versions. Kenneth Branagh made a film version starring Robert De Niro as the monster. And it's a kind of quite gory and uh, gross movie. In that movie, Fr Victor Frankenstein gathers all this amniotic fluid from all of these women and fills a tank with it. And that's the tank in which he creates this monster. So it's literally a kind of birth. Um, it's a work of science fiction. It, you know, it might be the first work of science fiction. It's a key text in the romantic movement and it's a kind of rebuttal against all kinds of enlightenment assumptions. So there's like a million extremely interesting directions we can go. And we only have two hours. We have this chat and we have our class. So we'll try to cover as much ground as we can. We'll talk about whatever is the most interesting to you. And then we'll try to cover as much ground as we can in the class. But it's really an inexhaustible book. Let me shut up by asking you guys how this book kind of defied your expectations. This book is a book that pervades pop culture. And we know uh, about the Frankenstein monster without having even read this book. So do you guys want to just spend a few minutes talking about what expectations you had going into this novel and how the novel um, defied them or maybe met them? I don't know. What would you say? Yeah. So I actually read this book in high school. I think a oh. lot of well, okay, great. So it, yeah, you knew kind of this time what to expect. But so try to travel backwards in time to that first time, maybe. And and yeah, tell me what you thought. Yeah, I remember the first time I read it, I was just kind of confused, especially at the beginning. It doesn't really, it starts out from a totally different perspective with the letters with the Walton and his sister and whatnot. Yes. And I was just kind of confused. I was like, who's the monster? Who's the scientists so but the second time that i read it i actually really liked that part of the book how it was just kind of a a, a bunch of stories being told from person to person mm -hmm. i really liked that part of the book and i thought it made it more like we're just another person in the chain of people hearing this story yes i, I really like that part of the book excellent in a minute i'm going to ask either of you both of you to tell me wh why you think Mary Shelley has designed this book that way. It is, as you say, Cassidy, a, a kind of Russian doll. There's a story inside of a story inside of a story inside of a story. I'd love to hear, I, I, I'm not fishing for the correct answer, you know, I would just love to hear a little bit more about what effect this has on you, what effect that structure has on you, and why an author would choose to compose a book like this. But Tacey, take us to your first reading experience and yeah, just describe what uh, what your expectations were and how this book defied them. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. I knew very little about Frankenstein before I read this. Really, the only things that I knew about it were related to kind of the Halloween, you know, <laughs> type yeah. of relation to it. So going into that, that's I kind of thought that it would be kind of a darker, maybe more gory book, but. Mm. As I was reading it, I felt like that really wasn't as much of the main premise as I expected it to be. It definitely delved more into kind of deeper questions about, you know, humanity and kind mm. of how we treat others and the effects that that has. I love that comment. You've put you've touched on something that is at the center, the center of the center of this book, how we treat others book is asking a moral question. I mean, it's a philosophical book. It's a psychological book. I think it's a religious book. It's certainly a scientific book. 
maybe at its heart, it's a moral book. Why is it that we treat others the way that we do and who counts as deserving of our compassion? Yeah, this is maybe not the best way to phrase this question, but yeah, we'll get into it. Shelley, like I said, was 18 when she began this novel. In 1816, she and her not yet husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and another romantic poet, Byron, and this man named Polidori were vacationing in Switzerland at Lake Geneva, and um, they were trapped indoors because the weather was horrible. This is actually the result of a volcano erupting at the other side of the world. Anyway, long story short, they decided to pass the time that they wanted to be spending out in the mountains. They decided to, sp- to pass this time telling ghost stories. And Polidori wrote dra- this story called Va- uh, The Vampire, I think, that kind of in- initiated the-, the Dracula legend. And Mary Shelley wrote a draft of this. She, Her parent, Mary Wollstonecraft, was her mother, who died at- due to complications giving birth to her. And Mary's stepmother and her had this horrible relationship. Uh, her father, William Godwin, is less known, but then was a leading Enlightenment thinker and believed that science and rational thought were the means by which humankind could perfect itself and become kind of godlike. So this is the emotional and mental and philosophical environment that Mary is growing up in. I think maybe we should start by talking about this Prometheus myth. The subtitle of this novel is The Modern Prometheus. So he's a titan. So this is ancient Greek mythology. And um, he steals fire from the gods and gives it to humans. There are many different versions of the story, and they give different reasons for why Prometheus does this. But he steals fire, which is this divine sacred thing, this this powerful thing, and he gives it to humans. And Zeus and the other gods are extremely mad. And to punish Prometheus, Zeus chains Prometheus to a rock. And every day, his liver is eaten by this eagle. And his liver grows back. So that's the punishment. He's attached by chains to this rock and he gets his liver eaten by this eagle. So this is a myth that she brings to our attention by using it as a subtitle. Now, my question is, is Prometheus a hero? Is he a giver of good gifts to humanity? Why does Zeus not want humans to have fire? And the analogous questions, of course, are, is Victor Frankenstein a hero? Is he a giver of good gifts to humanity? Or is this being critiqued? Like, it, is Mary Shelley criticizing the hubris of such a person? What are your thoughts? I think when Victor first was like studying at university and all in learning all these things from his professors, I think at first it was a good thing for him to be learning and expounding on his knowledge and experimenting. But I think it kind of got out of hand. And I think he recognized that as soon as he created the monster, he's like, oh, what did I just do? And throughout the book, he'll say, like, I created this monster. I created this demon. And all these things that happened are because of me. So I think the knowledge itself or like the fire itself from the Prometheus story, it's not bad, but it can it can snowball into something that's very bad this is i think that's why fire is such a great symbol in this in this myth right fire is good and productive and has has propelled homo sapiens into levels of comfort and safety and technological progress that our ancestors couldn't have imagined and yet it's so horribly dangerous you know i definitely agree that all that he was studying wasn't necessarily a bad thing it was just the fact that he kind of became so obsessed with it and kind of shifted his priorities, you know, where he wasn't talking to his family anymore, kind of shutting the outside Mm -hmm. world out. And it took 
him seeing his monster and like the monster's similar kind of obsession and passion over kind of having revenge on him and everything mm-hmm. that it took all of that for him to really notice the harm that came with his own obsessions. Yeah. He doesn't know the ways he, at the beginning of the novel, you're right. He doesn't yet know the ways in which knowledge could be bad. So here's an, here's an important question. We're, we're at a university. We're here to get knowledge. Is this book arguing that knowledge is bad? That, that's the question. And let me flesh this question out a bit. Are there limits? I'll ask you several versions of this question. Are there limits to what humans should find out or study? What boundaries should we put on science? Should we put boundaries on science? On an individual level, are there things that you think that it would be better if you did not find out? Truths about the world, facts about the universe. Volume 2, Chapter 5. The monster is teaching himself all these languages, learn, reading all these histories, learning about the world. And this makes him sadder. Right? He says, when I looked around, I saw and heard of none like me. Was I then a monster, a blot upon the earth from which all men fled and whom all men disowned? I cannot describe to you the agony that these reflections inflicted upon me. I tried to dispel them, but sorrow only increased with knowledge. Oh, that I had forever remained in my native wood, nor known nor felt beyond the sensations of hunger, thirst, and heat. Of what a strange nature is knowledge. It clings to the mind when it has once seized on it like a lichen on a rock. Right? He regrets finding things out. Is ignorance bliss? What do you think? I think that knowledge itself is not bad. I think what we do with that knowledge is what can be good or bad. So like you said, we're here at BYU and the whole motto of BYU is enter to learn, go forth to serve. Yeah. What we learn here, it can help us to go out and serve and do good and, and be good citizens of the world. But I also think that the knowledge that we learn can do bad things like what happened with Victor Frankenstein. Like he used his knowledge and he created this monster and, but he didn't know that this monster would be like terrible. He just didn't know the consequences of his actions. So I think we just need to be careful about how we use our knowledge and where we use our knowledge and our actions behind our, our knowledge treat knowledge like fire you know don't don't play around with it in ways that you're not ready for um i don't know exactly what this would mean on a practical level but be informed about the way that you're behaving in the world make sure that you try your best to anticipate the consequences of your actions and your contributions to a discussion or a class or a job or a family you know yeah treat knowledge with respect perhaps as a takeaway tacy what would you add yeah i definitely think that looking at not just what you're learning, but also kind of the consequences of putting that knowledge to use. If you look at Frankenstein, when he was making the monster and everything, he had complete control of it then. But once the monster became its own entity, then he no longer had control. And so that can kind of be the same with what we put our knowledge into, into making new things for society or technology or whatever we can use our knowledge to make that but once it's done then it's kind of out of our hands and we're kind of you know at it at its mercy your comment prompts from me the following question who is responsible for all of the murders that the monster does you know does the blame lay at victor at his feet 
is the monster an autonomous being that should take responsibility for his own crimes? Difficult to say. Maybe let's just kind of put that on the back burner and come back to it if we have time. Let's spend two more minutes talking about why we think this novel is told in a series of stories within stories. It's a very noticeable structural device. Walton is writing these letters. Inside of those letters, Victor Frankenstein is telling his story. Inside of that story, Frankenstein is telling his story. I went into the woods. I saw these cottagers. And even those cottagers are telling stories about their own lives. So there's at least four layers. Why? Why write a novel like this? I really liked this because I feel like when you are telling a story to another person that you know or like someone that you love, you tell it differently than how you would like write an essay or something or how you would write a book in this case. I really liked it because it was more of just like a raw reaction of all the characters and they were kind of just like speaking to their loved ones and, and the people that they knew. So we could kind of, we could kind of insert ourselves into that story and kind of feel like we were the person that they were talking to instead of just seeing like an overall picture, overall story being told by an author. Why did Mary Shelley choose the character of, what's his name, Robert Walton? Um, yeah, Robert Walton. What is he like and why does he have to be the one to hear Frankenstein's story, do we think? I think that it, it was purposefully Walton because he was on this boat to start his own like journey and discovery. Mm, right. And, um, and Victor was kind of at the end of his journey of discovery and knowledge and stuff and so i think that this was kind of a warning to walton to be like hold on just <laughs> wait and see like these are these are the consequences of my yeah. of my journey and at the end of the book when victor is dying and they were kind of stuck i think in the ocean that's right off from some ice or something and the ice had broken through and victor was saying like you have to go. You can't be like a wimp. You have to go and, and do all of this. And then Walton was like, I'd rather go home to my family and have them and and be seen like as a disgrace and like I quit on my journey. I'd rather do that than do basically what you did and have all these terrible consequences and have everyone I love. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Walton is a Victor Frankenstein in the making. He has all of this ambition, all of this pride. I'm going to go to the Arctic and discover the secrets of the magnets, discover, I don't know, this unknown territory. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be famous. I think it takes Robert Walton a remarkably long time to be convinced to turn around and go home. Where does this happen? Die is cast. We are still surrounded in mountains of ice. I mentioned in my last letter the fears I entertained of a mutiny, right? Because all of his crew wants to go home. Maybe it's not until he finally sees the monster himself and he has this final dialogue with the monster. I entered the cabin where lay the remains of my ill-fated and admirable friend. This is near the very end. Over him hung a form which I cannot find words to describe, gigantic in stature, yet uncouth and distorted in its proportions. As he hung over the coffin, his face was concealed by long locks of ragged hair. But one vast hand was extended in color and apparent texture like that of a mummy. When he heard the sound of my approach, he ceased to utter exclamations of horror and grief and sprung towards the window. Never did I behold a vision so horrible as his face, etc., etc. That is also my victim, he exclaimed, looking at the body of Victor Frankenstein. In his murder, my crimes are consummated. The miserable series of my being is wound to its close. 
he just leaves out the window, right? He tells Walton, like, oh, after I murdered Clerval, I returned to Switzerland, et cetera, et cetera. This seems to be the thing that changes Walton's mind, I think, but it's not clear in the text why. I don't know, maybe this isn't an interesting question. Um, maybe he's, he sees that Victor actually dies, and he kind of recognizes that he is, like you said before, like at the beginning stages of his Victor Frankenstein journey. Yeah. And kind of sees the full circle of what happened to him and how this kind of turned out for him. So maybe, maybe that changed his mind when he actually saw the monster and sees Victor die and he's like, well, I don't want to do that. So maybe that changes his mind. <laughs> he has to come face to face with the embodied consequences of Victor's hubris. You know, it's not enough to just hear the story because I feel like Walton, as he's hearing the story, is still sympathizing with Victor and still kind of admires him. I don't know. Here's a question. This this goes to Tacey's earlier comment about how we treat each other. Is the creature a human? Right? Does this thing count as human? Silence is the first best answer, I think. This is good. <laughs> This is good that you don't immediately know what to say. I want to say no, just because he's described as a monster. Like physically, he's not human. He's a monster. But I think he's going through all of the human. He's going through the human experience of, mm. of feeling happiness and joy when he's learning more about people and learning and reading books and mm. all that, all that stuff. But also the sorrow and heartbreak of of disappointment and pain. So I think he's a monster going through the human experience. That's great. He, on the inside, he's, he's quite, well, I don't know, Tacey, I want to hear your answer before I start. Yeah. Going off of tangents. What would you say, Tacey? I kind of think so. Cause I mean, like what Cassidy said, he, going through all of the same experiences that humans go through and stuff. And then it also requires us to kind of answer the question to, you know, what makes a monster a monster? Because some humans right. too are, uh, can be considered monsters because of things that they've done. And so it's kind of right. blurred lines between the two, <laughs> two words. Excellent. This is a very good point. It's bringing to my mind the fact that in some ways, well, in every way, the monster is better than the humans. He's taller, he's stronger, he's faster. He's, at the beginning at least, more compassionate. You noticed this, right? That he has this innate kind of goodness and compassion and goodwill towards everybody. In fact, he's a vegetarian, or he's in the woods, right, eating these berries. He doesn't want to hurt, you know, the little bunnies hopping around. So he's eating berries. It's only until people start to react to him and abuse him that he lashes out. So both on the inside and on the outside, he's he's not really subhuman. He's kind of superhuman, more than human. Why did Mary Shelley decide to make him like that and not somehow less than both physically and mentally? But he, and he learns all these languages. Remember that moment where he's like, oh, I learned the languages fast. I watched the boy study, but it took him a while, but I picked it up immediately. Soon he's like reading John Milton, Paradise Lost and all this stuff, you know? So he's super smart, super strong. Why is the monster better than the humans? 
I think that what makes this book so interesting is that Victor Frankenstein makes this monster and it's something that we're all supposed to be afraid of. And he makes he makes it like like you said, like this big, strong, smart, fast being. But really what makes it a monster is humans. Humans are the ones that destroyed him and made him flash out. And and we're also the ones that perceive him to be the monster. Like when he was in the hovel and he went and visited, I think his name is DeLacy and the blind man, because DeLacy couldn't see him, he was like, oh, this is just a really nice person. Like, and they just talked. But once the rest of the family saw him, like physically, they're like, they freaked out and he ran away and they moved away from that house because of that. The monster itself is not a monster. He's just, he's a nice guy that was just trying to <laughs> learn and live and do what, do what he wanted. But it was the humans that kind of our perception of this monster is what destroyed him. Yeah. And this is what Tacey says about the humans are actually, they act more monstrously than the monster. I mean, the monster ends up acting very monstrously, but only as the consequence of, how he's treated. This leads us to the question of Adam and Eve, perhaps. He reads Paradise Lost, which is this long poem about the fall of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So I have a couple questions in relation to this story, the story of Adam and Eve. So is at, are Adam and Eve blank slates? You know, there's this social theory about human beings, nature versus nurture. This is a very old debate. Do we come into the world as blank slates? and are created by things that happen to us? Or do we come into the world kind of already inscribed with behavioral tendencies, emotional attitudes? The monster seems to be kind of a blank slate and onto him is laid all of this cruelty. Is this how you see yourself in the world? The cruelties that humans are capable of, is that the product of culture or are we born with those tendencies? Are they inescapable? I feel like it's... A pretty good blend of both because, I mean, if you look at Frankenstein's monster, right, when he entered the world, you see possibility in him of being kind and gentle. But the fact that he entered into the world of like nothing being explained to him, right, his creator like just ran out of the room. Very good, yeah. And then before he really does anything good or bad, people are treating and kind of assuming that he's bad. That formed in his mind what he thought that he should be. <laughs> yes, Frankenstein's monster did like bad things throughout the book, but there definitely appeared to be moments where he could have been just as a kind of a good part of society. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. I've thought yeah, about right. this a lot of are are we products of nature or nurture? And I agree with Casey. I think it's a combination of both because I think uh, the monster Frankenstein was kind of a product of his surroundings. And I think if he had been treated better by humans, then maybe he wouldn't have been such a bad monster. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's kind of the nurture part of it. But I think the nature part of it is us as humans, we're scared of things that are not like us or mm. that's are physically different than us. And so when the humans saw this big monster, I think naturally they were scared of that. And because of that natural reaction, it affected someone else's, how someone else was nurtured and how this monster was nurtured. That's great. You know, it it reminds me that we are all actually 
too limited in our compassion. We see people who are different from us and, and instinctively are slightly scared of that difference. Yeah. So Mary Shelley has taken this to the, the kind of the most extreme and it, it, it kind of inspires me to react in, in a, in a similarly extreme way and extend my circle of compassion to not just all humans, but all kinds of non-human beings in the world. You know, the monster is a vegetarian because he's looking at these animals thinking, Oh, they're, they move. They're made of bones and muscle, just like me. I'm not advocating for vegetarianism. I'm just saying that we have no idea what's going on inside the brains of other creatures, you know. And I think that they, our circle of compassion, ideally, is widened and then widened and then widened and then widened. We shouldn't let, like that blind man, you know, it's, it's real horribly true that it's kind of these superficial skin level differences that get in our way. Let me ask you this. Film director Guillermo del Toro. So what movies has he made again? Pan's Labyrinth and others, famous ones, right? That that sea creature one? What's that one called? The Song of Water or something? Can't remember. Um, he describes Frankenstein as the quintessential teenage book. It's a kind of allegory for teenagerhood. I loved that. I read it and I thought, oh, that's so great. I love that so much. What do you guys think? When I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because I think, like me, a lot of us had to read this book in high school, right? <laughs> right? Right. And as I was reading it, I was I was thinking that this is a good book for teenagers because it shows the consequences of your actions. Um, it shows how Victor Frankenstein took his knowledge, like you said before, and exercised it and and made decisions and had actions, and then he had to suffer the consequences for those actions. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that teenagers need to know is because most teenagers are kind of self-centered and mm. kind of just looking at them at themselves, but there's more people in this world than just us. Mm-hmm. And what we do will affect not only the people around us, but people that we love and the world in general. I, I definitely agree with that. It's very much a book that emphasizes the importance of not just looking at this single desire or goal that you have, but what that can lead to and how it can affect others. That's great. I also think a part of it must be, I mean, we can identify with so many of the characters. We can we can identify with Victor Frankenstein himself, but also the monster. I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I felt somewhat monstrous. You know what I mean? I think all teenagers do. I think they feel like outcasts. I think this is the time in, in, a, in a human's life. I think when you're kids, I'm looking at my two kids now, and they seem more or less at home in the world. And at what age do we start to get glimmers of shyness or shame or self-consciousness or feeling that we're inferior or stupid or ugly? Doesn't this happen to all of us? And from the ages of about 12 to, I don't know, maybe it never ends. Maybe it just sl- slightly weakens. Do we feel alienated from the whole world and persecuted by the whole world and misunderstood by the whole world and physically self-conscious? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that as I was reading the book. When the monster was telling his story and explaining all the things that he was experiencing for the first time, food and yeah. And nature and in books and all that, all that good stuff. I was thinking about how it's interesting how Mary Shelley was kind of helping us to experience that for the first time too, because right. when we experienced that, we were young, like babies and toddlers, and we don't really remember that. So she kind of took us through that experience of experience all, experiencing all these things for the first time. 
it kind of, she kind of shows how the world kind of ruins that perspective and how humans can kind of destroy each other. And I think that's definitely similar to how a lot of teenagers feel. They kind of have this first experience of the world, quote unquote, ruining them. That sounds yeah. really harsh, but they get a first taste of how it feels to not have everything revolve around you and experience of just like the harshness of the world. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I think it does that. And then also kind of shows the eventual hardness that some teenagers get once they, you know, realize all these things of feeling like an outcast. And then eventually they're like, you know what? Yeah, I am just kind of acting out on it. I don't want to get too morbid, but I guess I'm about to. When I read this book, I think about a lot of things. One of the things I think about are school shooters, you know? young adults or late or teenagers who have been hurt by the world and who act very much like the monster in this book, who dedicate their lives to inflicting pain on other people. This book predicted so much about modern society, so very much. And this is only one of those things, the way in which if you're not careful, you can let the pains that you suffer fill you with a desire to multiply those pains. Do you see the book offering any even subtle, even implicit lessons on how to avoid this, to prevent it from happening to you? Because we all suffer. We're all hurt in some ways. Some some hurts are more deep and profound than others, of course. But there must be a way to make this process not inevitable. Yeah, I would say that that is the lesson of how to stop that, is after you get hurt, don't make someone else feel the same way that you felt which is so hard to do, especially for this monster who yeah. doesn't really know anything about the world. Like this is his first experiences with the world. He, for a while, he, he says to Dr. And I said, I shouldn't say Dr. Frankenstein. He's, 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 he's not referred to in this book as doctor. That's a late pop culture addition. Victor, which is a very interesting name, isn't it? The Victor, he's the Victor of what exactly? That also must be slightly ironic. Like he hasn't really been victorious over very much good. Um, was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The monster for a while says to him, like, look, just give me a mate and we'll move to South America and we'll live in the jungle. and We won't harm anyone. So I feel like even in midway through this process, the monster was willing to put aside these wounds of his the way that he's been treated. You know, if you imagine this as an allegory of parenting, Victor has created this child and the child is crawling. In fact, in that Kenneth Branagh, Robert De Niro version, the monster, actually, the first thing he does after he bursts out of this amniotic fluid tank is start crawling on the ground, very much like an infant. So it's crawling towards Victor. What does Victor do in the book? He immediately runs away, goes to his bed, kind of closes his bed curtains, falls asleep, has this weird dream. And the monster kind of peeks in and is like, you know, this is where that wonderful, I think in the Boris Karloff movie, you know, we get this very lumbering, idiotic beast who is not at all like the monster from the book. I think the, that in that version of the monster is like, friend, you know, all, all I wanted was someone to love. Very much like a child. I mean, what is what is the one thing a child needs to be loved? If the people who are supposed to love you do not love you, bad things start to happen. But that doesn't mean that the process is inevitable. The monster even says, look, I'll, I'll just leave you alone. All I just want is someone 
why does he want this mate? Because it's a person who will love him for who he is, you know, and if you just give me one such person in the world, I will leave you alone and go live in peace. So perhaps one of the ingredients is to be that person for other people. If you know people who are hurt and wounded and struggling and suffering, you know, we must love them to get preachy for a second. Um, what is romantic about this book? We're reading this book as a, a, a epitome of romantic literature and also those short two poems, one of which weirdly is quoted in this book. It's kind of hard to notice because we're not given a title, but uh, Victor, he reads these lines from Tintern Abbey. This is at the end of chapter one, I think volume three, the sounding cataract haunted him like a passion, the tall rock, the mountain, etc. That's from Tintern Abbey. So in what way does this present a new way of thinking about the world that is romantic with a capital R? We can pick this up maybe in class, but what would you guys say? There is this quote that I really liked from the book when Frankenstein was talking to the professors and they saying that uh, modern scientists have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own yeah. shadows. This kind of shows some of the romantic ideas is just the evolution of science and kind of it doesn't really kind of destroy the supernatural or magic that we find in this world, but actually um, kind of give us access to it. And that's great. I see this as a kind of warning to so Mary Shelley's parents are these key Enlightenment thinkers, not really yet romantic thinkers. And her father is a person, like I said, who thinks that humans, if they use science and reason, can perfect themselves. I think their daughter, this is a slight act of rebellion, maybe a profound act of rebellion, is saying to them, yeah, I'm sure that you can get far with science. I have no doubts about that. But be careful. There's a warning built into this. You know, if you think that reason alone and science alone can perfect us, there could be a dark side to that. I, I thought that was interesting, too, how Mary Shelley was kind of explaining, like, yeah, science can do a lot. It can create a human out of from a lab. But is that what we really want? Is that is that what we should be hmm. looking for? Should we do we need that as humans to be fulfilled or can we find our fulfillment somewhere else? I think one of the details of the book was something that I noticed was after Victor went through kind of like a traumatic experience, like he created the monster or one of his family members dies or whatever, whatever it was, he went out in nature and and he observed the the mountains and the lakes and the rivers. And there was a, a lot of paragraphs where he was just explaining how he felt at peace and that he forgot about all of his troubles. And I think that's something that Mary Shelley was kind of trying to subtly explain to us that what we are surrounded by all this greatness and what else do we need besides that like we don't need to create these monsters we are surrounded by so much greatness yeah that if we meddle too much i mean that nature is something that is beautiful and awe-inspiring but that should be treated like fire treated with a little bit of humility um if we think that we can become the gods of nature perhaps we need to be a little bit more humble about that we didn't talk about these murders that the monster commits he kills Victor's little brother named William. A Freudian would make much of the fact that Mary's, uh, Mary Shelley's father is named William and son was named William, son who died. 
And then someone, an innocent woman is hung in, res- in, in response to that murder. And then the monster kills, the monster eventually kills Victor's bride on their wedding night. I feel like I'm missing people. Uh, oh, the best, fr- the best friend. Yeah, you're right. Henry Clerval. Yeah. I find this a wonderfully subtle analogy to the Prometheus myth. The ancient Greeks thought that the liver was the seat of human emotion. So we would say, I love you with my whole heart. The Greeks might not say, I love you with my whole liver, but for them, that, that was the organ that contained, was the source of all these emotions. So it's as if Victor, Victor's sin, quote unquote, is the thing that's responsible for getting his heart torn out of him again and again and again. You know, every time someone close to him, his, him dies, his heart is torn out, his heart is torn out, just like this eagle that rips the liver out of Prometheus. I say that this th- this book is a foundational book for our culture, modern culture. Do you, and we can name names, you know? I don't know whose name you want to name. What monsters are we in 2021 as a society, as a very technologically advanced society? What monsters are we on the verge of creating? Have we already created and haven't really realized it? What monsters did we create a few years ago that are starting to wreak havoc on our societies and our cultures and the way we live? Let's bring this allegory home in the final three minutes of our conversation. What are what are our monsters? Yeah, then the number one thing that came to first to my head was social media. And I think that it's very similar to this monster that was that was created. It was created for people to connect with each other and and to be able to just have this connection at at the tip of their fingers. Yeah. But it's become this platform for bullying bullying and harassment. And yeah. it's still like at its core something that can be good. But just like we said about knowledge, we, we're kind of responsible for its consequences. So it can yeah. be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It's just a matter of how we treat it. But even even without all the bullying, which is horrible enough, it, it social media puts us in these media silos. This is something a classmate of ours, Stephen, I think it was, talked about. You know, We only see our own Facebook feed, so this reinforces our own ideas. It's the cause of a lot of polarization politically. But also, like, they're so addictive. They're such time wasters. Mm-hmm. There's this, um, this is now, I'm dating me. This is like a five-year or ten-year-old thing. Fear of missing out syndrome or the perfectionism, you can kind of start feeling bad about your own life because, oh, my friend's lives are all perfect. Well, of course, they look perfect. That's all they post. It causes really bad, you know, and suicide rates are way up, especially among young girls, teenage girls. This is all really bad. I would put social media at the top of our monster list. Monsters are also kind of our inner demons um, with kind of mental illness issues being on the rise, kind of like what you mentioned, especially with COVID nowadays and people are kind of forced to (laughs) um, be quarantined and kind of stuck with them. And they, they feel even like there's even less of an escape from that. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, It's funny that you mentioned COVID actually. I know that it's three o'clock. I'll let you go in 30 seconds, but um, I think it was literally a debate in Mary Shelley's day, whether or not vaccines cross a kind of Frankensteinian line is this too much of a meddling with nature? Are we playing God by administering vaccines? They were asking themselves, and this particular debate hasn't ended. I was just reading in the news today about um, this ferret that was recently cloned. Apparently there's an endangered ferret 
and scientists have just cloned it because it's endangered and they say, hey, we can save it. I mean, this is good. This is like fire. This is good. I would not protest to that. But then you, where does it end? Who draws what line where? This book predicted Jurassic Park. You know, it predicted, well, Blade Runner. Uh, people probably don't watch this movie anymore. Uh, data on Star Trek. I'm now adding myself as a nerd. What is a human? You know, these other movies, Ex Machina, you know, AI. Is this a sentient being that we should pay respects to? Anyway, I'm rambling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for an, an excellent chat. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Bye. As you heard in that chat, Mary Shelley was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley, the English Romantic poet, author of some of my favorite poems, and a poem which I think is quite well known and beloved, called Ozymandias, which I'd like to read now as the poem of the day. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's it for now. In addition to the two shorter recordings I'm releasing in conjunction with this one about Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, I will soon be recording a chat with a couple of you about Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. So look out for that. And of course, in the meantime, just keep reading. Try to maybe read a little bit ahead. Most importantly, just enjoy the readings. (laughs) ¶¶